All right. So tonight I'm going to talk about, the title would be um, Path in View. Talking about Path in View, which is a kind of beginning to roll us from doing this mind cultivation, steady, steady practice, which you're doing as we move in tomorrow, slowly, slowly trying to just roll out into, into the world. Um, and so how do we contextualize, and I think this is important to reflect on, uh, clearly uh, much of what goes on here uh, cannot be integrated back into your life. Um, that was always the big uh, thing that you used to do at the end of the retreats, and, and the question is how do you integrate what goes on in retreat into the rest of your life? And I think the fact of the matter is largely we can't. Um, which is so important to do these, these retreats, as you can see. There's just nothing that mimics what we've done here for the last seven days. And that's just, I think that's just how that is. So in what ways can we, and how can we offer a broader frame or a contextualization for like how we can, and what the, um, how does this help us live our life, I think is the question I would ask myself. Because, it, you know, if you're going to do this long retreat, it, we want this to be meaningful. We want this to be helpful. We want this to be supportive. It's not like a vacation. Far from it. I'm sure you've learned. Right? So when we think about... So let's just talk about this word path a little bit, uh, which is uh, the Pali word is path, is maga. And uh, we always talk about the Buddhist path. Um, that's kind of what it is. The word path is pretty accurate, but I also just want to highlight that uh, the word path can be a bit confusing and to some degree misleading. Because if you go to the forest, if you go to a place and you find a path, it's pretty well laid out. You know, you, you don't even really have to pay that much attention. You can, just, you can just follow the path, right? It's pretty easy. But I think of this path more as a path of cultivation. And it's more like somebody drops you off at the bottom of a hill in the jungle with a machete and says, chop that way. That's about really more accurate, right? Doesn't it feel like that? It's not really that well laid out. It's not like you just come here on day one and put the mind in park and just cruise the whole time. Right? So sometimes the word path can be misleading. And so when we look at the most basic definition of the path, or we could say really it's the path or the way, the way, um, the way we can live our lives, and really to try to develop a meaningful life, uh, is to cultivate what is wholesome and to abandon what is unwholesome. Pretty much that's the most basic definition of the path, which we've kind of to some degree been addressing in many, many ways here. So the key word here is cultivate, and that means to bring something into being. Right? And that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring our life into a being. We're trying to create a life for ourselves that we actually want to live. And that starts with inhabiting a mind and body that we don't mind being in. If I don't want to be in here, you know, there's not really much to do from there. Then we end up trying to chase after pleasure and push away pain and think the goal of life is to get the things that we want, which is kind of status quo. So the reason why we, there's so much emphasis on developing the mind and developing the heart is because we want ground zero to some degree be sustainable, to be steady, to be open, to be kind, to be friendly, to be, uh, as Eileen said the other night, which is a great analogy, to, to be available to make new choices, to do new things, to have some agency. So a lot of what we're doing in, the, in this Mahasi 
practice and what we've been doing for many days is developing the mind, developing the mind, which is your greatest ally. A well-developed mind is the greatest tool to navigate the world. And then we want to get that working for us as soon as we can. So wholesome, there's these words, again, I'll use these words again, kusala and akusala, we skillful and unskillful, or we could say wholesome and unwholesome, we could say constructive and destructive, we could say beneficial and detrimental, any kinds of these sets work, and whatever one makes more, most sense to you is totally fine. Right? And so we could say that what's kusala or what's beneficial or what's skillful is that which supports my happiness and the happiness of other people. So if what I'm doing and what I'm thinking and how I'm living is supporting my sense of well-being and happiness and that of other people, then that would be skillful, that would be wholesome, that would be constructive. If what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, how I'm living is uh, causing me to be unhappy and unhappiness to other people, then that's considered unskillful, destructive, which is really not that hard to assess. Like You can kind of figure that one out. And like I said... The beginning of the retreat, developing, purifying, and transforming the behavior. You've already all been doing this for years and years already anyway. So that, that I think, is a relief. Especially when people come into meditation, I always run like, well, I've never meditated before. I'm like, yeah, but you've been doing a lot of other things that are very supportive to the meditative path. That's why goodness and wholesomeness is so important. As the Buddha says in the text... He said it's really hard to meditate after a long day of stealing and murdering and burning people's villages to the ground. Right? And you, you've seen this and you're wondering, have you ever done something that you really wish you didn't do? And then you sit down and you go, oh man. Right? We regret. And regret's really healthy. We want to. If we do things that are unwholesome, that are unskillful, that are harmful, the appropriate feeling is actually regret. So when we cultivate this uh, well-being, this goodness, we're already really setting, the, we're setting a, a good foundation for Dharma practice. Or through to abandon it or overcome that, which is unskillful. And so the thing that makes the path and the practice so difficult is there's not like a one-thing thing, which is kind of the question that you get as a teacher. People always go, you know, people, we always want to know, what's the one thing? Give me the things, teacher. What's the, what's the one thing that I should do? And if you look at Dharma teachings, there's lots of lists. Have you noticed? There's no list of one. I don't think there's even a list of two. I think the best you're going to get is a list of three. Right? So we're already having to juggle. And so there's two aspects to the path, and that one is what we've been doing here, is keeping an eye on the footsteps on the path being in the present moment, walking the path, being engaged with life as it happens. is kind of really what you've been doing here, developing the mind to be present for experience as it arises. But that's not it. That's why I don't like this power now business. I don't like this whole, just be in the present moment and everything's going to work out for you. Totally foolish narrative. Right? So we have to have this ability to be present, but we have to have a sense of where we're going. So the analogy is like if you're climbing a mountain or you're going for a hike, you need to be able to follow the trail. You need to be able to be careful where you're placing your feet, but you need to have a sense of where the peak of the mountain is. And so you have to 
you have to constantly be rocking back and forth. Where am I going? What's going on here? How am I getting there? Otherwise, we just... If we're walking without direction or walking without a purpose, uh, we might just find ourselves walking round and round and round. Which is, I, which is what I believe a lot of religion systems do. They just kind of provide this round and round. And actually, if you look at the definition of what going round and round is, you see this word samsara. Samsara just means to go round and round in circles with no purpose, no point, no direction. That's not what we want to do. So this is why we talk about view or path, path and view. I talk a lot about this, what's called the the Eightfold Path. I'll pack that tonight. Uh, And that starts first with, with Samaditi view, perspective. I have to have some sense, I don't have to have it all worked out, uh, some sense of where this might be leading. Where is this going? And then as I walk, I can check. I can, you kind of have to check and check back and check. We have to have a sense of our location, but we have to have some kind of global awareness of where we want this to go or where we think we might want this to go. That make sense? You have to be able to do two, both of those things. And that's kind of how we navigate and check our progress on the path. One of the definitions that I like of path is, first of all, path is a verb, again. It's not a noun. It's not a person, place, or thing that exists. It's a path. So really what we're doing is we're pathing. How do we path? Is to proceed to a destination without impediment. So to proceed to a destination without impediment, without obstruction, without hindrances, in community with others. Right. Now, if you go to, so let's just talk about that a little bit. Um, if you go to hike somewhere to a place, you notice you go to a place, you get out of the car, what's the first thing you come to? You come to what they call the trailhead. Right? And so the trailhead to the path is this Nibbana experience I've talked about. So in many ways, this is where I think Buddhist philosophy uh, became very problematic in terms of practicality is that usually we, you hear, and I'm sure you've heard it, 99% of books on Buddhism would say this, is that this is the path that leads to the end of suffering. Um, which, you know, very attractive idea. Uh, and to some degree, that's not wrong or not quite right, but I think that, is, um, that really limits the richness and the dynamic uh, and the subjective reality of where we want to go. Because to some degree, we're all kind of doing something differently. So when you come to a trailhead, there's actually many paths. Usually when you go to a hiking, there's there's all different kinds of paths. And so the Buddha has these eightfold paths. Well, there's the right view path, and the intention path, and the mindfulness path, and the word path. And so how do those paths get there is because hundreds or thousands probably of people have already walked on them. So this is not a practice that does well in isolation. right? If you try to do it in isolation, you're back to the side of the road with the machete in the jungle. And there's no sense of purpose, there's no sense of direction. There's no sense of having, this having been done or walked or cultivated before. So even to go hiking for yourself, to go hiking in the woods by yourself on a trailhead, you're already coming into contact with many places and many things that other people have done in the past. So in community with others. This is a very difficult practice. Actually, anything, to be honest with you, it's pretty difficult to do in isolation. 
And that's why I think it's, um, I'm so grateful and so excited that, uh, like, and I'll talk about this more at the end, but this, is, this, this retreat actually feels like a huge milestone and a huge achievement, a huge turning point uh, in my kind of teaching career because uh, this, you know, this wasn't out in the general public. This was just kind of, uh, and some people came in, but this, is, this was an invite retreat. And the fact that I was able to get 25 people that I mostly know really well to come all the way out here and do all the work to come here is, feels like a pretty big milestone, actually. Um, and, and, and I can tell you, me and Eileen were talking about this before. It feels a lot better for me to be sitting here in front of all you than me and Eileen sitting here in front of 25 strangers that we've never met before. Which I do. I do do retreats like that. And if I could afford to, the first thing I would do is stop doing those kinds of retreats because it's, it's hard, it's awkward, it's bizarre to, to, to do something as intimate as this, right? There's no way around it. This is a very intimate experience with 25 people that I don't know. It's actually kind of stressful, Right? And so this is like kind of feels like a pretty big milestone in that sense. And so if you look in the early teachings, if you look in the Pali Canon, it actually does not say that this is the path that leads to the end of suffering. Actually, there's a sutta. It says this is a path that leads to a city. There's a sutta called the ancient city, which I think is a fabulous sutta. And what the Buddha says, he says, I followed this ancient path and he named each of the eightfold path factors. I followed this path, I developed this path, I cultivated this path, and I came to an ancient city that was inhabited by people long ago, that was a thriving city, that was a beautiful city, that was a civilization, where people inhabited a long time ago, where there were parks and ramparts and all this whole big description of it. And then he goes and says to the people of the ruling class, to the kings and to the ministers and the you know, the presidents and the people who run the whole, he said, renovate this city, bring the city back. Right. And so what does that actually mean? I remember reading that, but what the hell is he talking about? Right. So he's making the analogy that, uh, that the, our life, there's a kind of an internal city that can be uncovered, that can be developed, that can be cultivated. And many people would argue, and I believe, that uh, what the Buddha's hope for humanity was actually has never happened. You know, his, his wish, his suggestion, his ideas have, in 2,500 years, have not been manifest. Right? Because we do see that Buddhism uh, it was adopted as a monastic training and a monastic tradition, which I think I'm super grateful for. I'm so glad that that has thrived and has expanded in all the ways in which Buddhism has done. But I'm not going to do that. You know, I, we all live a very different life. We live a secular life. We live a contemporary life. We, we don't live the way that they live. So trying to translate that into American culture in 2023, it's just been a really kind of messy thing. It hasn't really, hasn't really been done yet, really even close to having been tried. And so he's talking about... Uh, to renovate the person, to renovate our experience, to cultivate, to build a life that we want to live. And he gives us these eight kind of dynamic uh, elements of our experience and tells you this is, how, this is how you do it. I thought that was pretty interesting, that he's trying to point to a way in which... He, so really, he's, all, he's not really so much about human suffering, 
which I, I think where Buddhism gets its kind of undeserved bad reputation. I was, um, a couple years ago, I was picking up Emmett at school, and, I, and one of my favorite things to do that's not super skillful is I love it when other people talk and I can hear them loud enough to eavesdrop. I go to a restaurant and eat by myself just so I can do that shit. I don't know why. And one of the women was saying, the other woman, uh, two moms were talking, and one of them said, yeah, I've been reading this book on Buddhism. And the other woman said, oh, really? Oh, that's cool. You know, what's going on? She's like, yeah, it's such a bummer. She's like, it's all about suffering. She's like, yeah. She's like, I, 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 didn't, I don't think I'm even going to finish it. She was just like, I'm over it. And I was like, I was like, oh, I wanted to like jump in. I was like, wait a minute, no, it's not like that. And I was like, that would be kind of weird. I don't know if they like. I didn't say anything. I kind of wish I had. I said, actually, by the way, uh, it's actually about human flourishing. You know, suffering is just the beginning. It's the first noble truth. It's it's where it's where it begins. It begins by embracing and understanding, in many ways, the the ways in which we're limited the limitations of the human experience, the, the fact that we live in, whether you like it or not, this kind of ongoing existential dilemma. Birth, old age, sickness, and death. I don't always get what I want. I lose the things I love. You know, that, that there's, there's this, there's that, that re, it's a very strict reality. Reality is strict and hard and fast and does not care what you think. And it's rough. Right? And that's where it begins. That's not the end of the story. That's like maybe the beginning. And so when he talks about paths, he's always, the word that they use is, so, so with the first task, or we look at the first noble truth, the, the, the suggestion is to embrace that, to embrace life, to fully know, to fully embody the existential dilemma and be willing to actually walk it one moment at a time, knowing that we always have this kind of uh, cloud of existential uncertainty, don't know, not sure, always hanging over us. And that needs to be embraced, that needs to be understood, that needs to be accepted. But a lot of times what we do is we fight with that. Right? We're like, this is hard, I'm going to make it harder. <laughs> and you're really good at it. You're like, I don't want to stop making life hard now, I'm like so good at this. Right? And so, and then he asks us to, then he offers these tools in the second uh, so he says to try to embrace this and then try to overcome and to try to let go of these destructive, unwholesome forces in the mind, which actually goes back to this first definition I read. This path is about overcoming these things. And so there's a therapeutic, a technical skill set that we can develop, that you've been developing, whether you realize it or not, moment by moment for the last seven days, of seeing these destructive forces arise in the mind, meeting them with kindness, meeting with them awareness, and saying, you know what, no thank you. You know? I'm, no, I'm going to do something else, at least for the next 30 seconds. Right? And so we, over, we, we work with that. And then we, then we come into this third truth or this nebonic experiences of possibilities, of agency. Eileen talked about it and did a really great job summing that up. It's like, it's like, what if I did things differently? What if I didn't always do what I always do? What if I did something else? I have some agency. It's a more of a contemplative kind of practice, the contemplative side of Dharma. You know? And then, and then when we do that, we come to this trailhead of from that place of Nibbana, from that place of overcoming these forces in the mind, I come to a kind of perspective on life. That's, oh, okay. 
But you don't just, that's not a, the thing that, that's not a singular event. You don't just do that one time. We're always having the practice. We're always, to some degree, working moment by moment to try to get back to that perspective, back to that place of Nibbana. So we're, these first three are always emerging. They're always arising. There's always work to be done because of impermanence. And impermanence is hard at work in every moment. It's a busy little guy. Just never stops, man. Impermanence is just always cranking. <laughs> never takes a break. As soon as you think you got it, it's gone. It's just on and on and on. So we have to keep up with that. Always having to keep up. So I want to read this sutta. I'll try to pare it down a little bit. I think it's one of the most interesting and important suttas in the canon. It's actually called On Cultivation. Um, And I like it because the Buddha uses, he compares the entire practice of the Dharma with chickens and eggs. And I actually have chickens at my house. And it actually turns out to be true. And he says, uh, liberation does not happen because you wish for it. It happens because you develop the path. Practitioners, when a practitioner is not committed to development, they might wish, if only my mind were freed from the hindrances by not grasping. Even so, their mind is not freed from these hindrances by not grasping. Why is that? You should always say it is because they're underdeveloped. So the liberation practice, is just, it's not that we're bad or we're wrong, it's just that we're just underdeveloped. Right? It's just not... So again, it's not... You know, and this is part of equanimity. It's like my freedom and my happiness is not dependent upon my wishes. It's dependent upon my actions. I can want and want and want and want and wish and hope and all that stuff all day long, but it's not going to do me any good until I actually cultivate. Like the seed and fruit is now. It's like if someone gives me a peach seed and I stick it on the shelf next to all my fabulous Dharma books that I may or may not read or practice that seed will sit there for eternity. So oh, I really want the seed to turn into a delicious peach someday. It's like, well, it's not going to do shit if it just sits there. And he says, in the same way, suppose a chicken with 8, 10, or 12 eggs had these eggs. She did not properly sit on these eggs, and she wanted them to be warm and to incubated. If that chicken did not sit on those eggs and only wished for those eggs to hatch, they would not hatch. And then he goes on to say that if the chicken doesn't want the eggs to hatch, and says, I really don't want these eggs to hatch, I don't want these chickens to hatch, but does sit on them, they're going to hatch anyway. So what you want and what you wish for, kind of irrelevant. And this is one thing I love about the practice in the context of a retreat, is even if you wanted to not get anything out of this retreat, you couldn't keep it from happening. So just by sitting with the mind, just developing the mind, you're going to have fruition, which you can obviously see from our conversations. It can't not work. That's one thing I love about the Dharma. It can't not work. If you do it, if you sit on those eggs, and you're like, man, I really hope these eggs don't hatch. It's like growing a garden and like going out there every day and watering the tomatoes and fertilizing the thing and being like, man, I really hope this shit doesn't grow. (laughs) You're out there all mad, taking care of them, pulling the weeds, watering, fertilizing, like, man, I'll be... 
and then it starts to grow. You can't keep it from happening. Does that make sense? It's not a, it's not a choice. It's not about that. And so he's really trying to, so this is on cultivation, and he goes on to say uh, what's underdeveloped, and this, this, is, this is a conversation we'll have more in days to come, but because um, it's, a, it's a milestone of a program that we have coming out. Uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, which we've been developing, that's been that development of the mind in the Mahasi system. The four foundations of mindfulness, the four efforts, the four bases of creativity, the five spiritual faculties, the seven awakening factors, and the eightfold path. It's not too many. <laughs> seven sets. And he's really saying these are the ones. These are the facets. These are, what, these are the eggs that you want to sit on. 32 eggs, if you tease it all out. That's not too many. Not too bad. Although that chicken has got to be moving around a lot. <laughs> right? And so what he's also saying with these eight path factors is a lot of times we don't keep the eggs moving. Like, and we look at our culture, what are most people doing? They're just sitting on the mindfulness egg. Right? They're like, I'm doing the mindfulness thing, I'm, doing, I'm in the present moment, I'm doing the mindfulness thing, I'm in the present moment, it still sucks in the present moment, why is it going to be good in the present moment? Right? When you, and this is kind of, uh, I don't want to go too far down this road, but this is where like, secular mindfulness and some of the mindfulness stuff that we see in our culture is limited, is when you, when you kind of pluck something out of the Buddhist tradition or out of the Dharma system, and you just take it out from the context and just kind of try to develop it as one thing, you, it doesn't necessarily work so great because you're not, you're not exporting all the other stuff that it needs to survive. You're not getting a system thing on it. You're just getting one part of it. Right? And we see this. This is like there's so many evidence, so much evidence to suggest that this is what happens. And so he goes on to say this, and I really like this. He says, suppose a carpenter or their apprentice sees marks in his fingers and thumbs on the handle of his axe. So you ever see like an old um, piece of, an old tool? So if, if, if a carpenter has an axe that he's been swinging for years and years, the handle's all worn in, right? It's all worn in. And he says, they don't know how much of the handle was worn away today, how much of the handle yesterday, or how much of the handle previously. They just know it has been worn away. In the same way, when a practitioner is committed to development, they don't know how much of the hindrances were worn away today, how much yesterday, and how much previously. They just know it has been worn away. And this is irritating because you can't, like, if you have bought a new axe, you can't really watch the handle wear down. Right? You just, it happens too slowly. It happens too uh, over, over time. So you can't be like, okay, this much was worn down today because I used the axe for an hour. But you look at it clearly, you're like, wow, this thing's been swung a million times. And he, he's making that analogy to our practice, to our process, to our development. It's like trying to watch a flower grow. It's like, but, if you, but if you come back the next day, you don't see it for three days, you come back, there's a little bloom out of the thing. It does grow, we know it does. But it happens slowly, the development is so slow, you can't actually watch your progress develop in real time, which is, you know, kind of a bummer. So it's really, really hard to track the progress. Right? It's like you're walking the path and you're like, you ever go for a hike and, you're, and it looks like the hilltop's really close? 
And you're like, Jesus, I've been walking for like an hour. It's, it was just right there. Now it seems farther than it was. Right? And that's kind of how it is. Right? And so, so the part is like, how do we keep walking? And so again, there's no, because we have a list of eight, it's, at some point when you make a list of eight, you have to put things in order. And so we want to really think that these, uh, like even the chicken who's moving the eggs around, there's no order. There's no like, I'm, the chicken can't go, well, that one's going to hatch and this one's going to hatch. It doesn't know what order the eggs are going to hatch. It just knows by moving them around that they will all come into fruition. So as much as there's not really an order, I'm kind of have to put them in an order to talk about them. So I'm going to use the order that's more in line with kind of what we've done here so we can maybe get a sense of what's been going on, starting with the meditation, starting with mindfulness or mind training. So that would be samadhi, developing the mind, sila, which is what you'll bring into the world, and then the wisdom path factors, which we, me me and Eileen, and some of you were in it, we just finished a program not too long ago, a 15-month program, where we followed these sequences and it actually worked out quite well in terms of order. So the first word that we see is, and this is a good place to start, is uh, this word effort. So then the question becomes, okay, like, I hear you, I get it, I like it, how much effort? And how much work is this going to take? Right. Uh, the word is vayama, which kind of means effort. I think the better way to think about it is application. How do I apply myself? How do I apply? In which ways do I apply the mind towards these experiences? And so it brings us, again, right back, back to this original practice, is that how do I apply myself? Well, I want to prevent these destructive forces from arising in my mind, and I want to overcome them when they have arisen. And that's what we've been doing a lot of that here. So, so really the path, in many ways, is rooted in lack of a better word, ethics. It's about developing skillful, wholesome states of mind, right? By preventing them from arising, by living with integrity, and by working with overcoming them when they have arisen, which you've been doing, you've probably done that, I don't know, thousands of times since you've been here. How many times did you recognize something going on in your mind that wasn't really that supportive or that beneficial? And you said, nah. Right? So every time you do that, this is the one way to understand karma that's maybe helpful is every time you do that little mark, you're like, that's destructive, that's not helping me, I'm going to mark that off and put that over here. At some point in the future, that is going to re-arise in the mind stream. And if you do that enough of times, it will create a habituation where the mind will actually start to let go of these destructive forces in the mind automatically. Habituation works both ways. Habit gets a bad rap, but all habits aren't necessarily all bad or what they call sankaras, these activation programs of the mind. So even as you sit here, mindfulness, all this mindfulness, I mean, how many moments of mindfulness have you cultivated? 100,000? Maybe? I don't know, a lot. Somewhere down the road, because you planted that seed, it will actually come into fruition. And someday, a week from now, Two years from now, five years from now, you're just going to kind of wake up in a moment of experience and it's going to like, it's just going to happen. It's going to, it will come into fruition, or at least that's the theory. And I always like to say, if you show up for the present moment enough, it will start to show up for you. 
Right? And you've had these moments. You ever just kind of snap out of some like craziness and be like, ooh, that was weird. <laughs> well, that's over. You didn't even like mean to do it. So this mind development, it's not, it's not, it, it's effort and it's work, but it does pay dividends somewhere down the road because it becomes uh, a natural process of the mind. Just like wanting and not wanting can be developed, uh, then kindness and generosity can be developed. It can all be overcome and it can all be developed. And it's just a moment by moment way in which we do that. And that's, I think, an encouraging idea. So it's not like you have to be grinding it out from here till eternity. And mindfulness, Dharma practice, has an evolution to it. Like the mindfulness that you had on Monday is actually different than the mindfulness you have today. And the mindfulness you have in a year from now will be different than the mindfulness you have now. It's an evolving aspect. It gets richer. It gets more profound. It, it takes on more dynamic experiences. In some ways, it's also kind of a drag because you, you start to get good at like watching the stuff that's not so great. Like Michael's question and comment earlier about unhappiness that I was mentioning. It's like one of the things that was so liberating about that experience, it wasn't, it wasn't like an ontological statement, like some statement like, I am Dave Smith, this unhappy person. But it, what it was, it was a reflection on the path of like, oh, I'm unhappy about a lot of things that have happened. And I've never been unhappy about those things when they happened because I wasn't able to feel into the vulnerability. I wasn't able, so they're just hanging out there. And so when we just kind of come into that, like, oh, yeah, like, I'm, oh, man, that was, I'm really still a little bit unhappy about that. Boy, I really wish that didn't happen. Or I really wish that did happen. Oh, man, that's kind of a, still, uh, still a little sad about that, actually. You know, so a lot of times uh, we, these things are unliberated because we have unhappiness, we have these things going on. But Again, back to that turning point, when those things were happening in real time, I denied them, I pushed them away, I pretended like, oh, it wasn't really, really bad, I minimize it, I justify it, I rationalize it, I tell myself a story about, oh, I'm actually not really that unhappy about that, oh, I didn't really want that job anyway, or, you know, this other thing happened which was better than that, and we just kind of, just don't acknowledge it. Right? And it's so healthy, it's so important to wake up to like, oh man, I'm... I'm, I'm actually really unhappy. I'm really bummed, disappointed that that didn't work out. You know, that's never going to work out. That's that, that wish I had, that desire I had at one point, and that didn't happen. There was loss there. So it's really trippy because it's the loss of what could have been if only. Have you ever found yourself living into the loss of what have, could have been if only? Boy, that is a bad path. <laughs> There's nothing down that road, I promise you except for to acknowledge in the present moment that it actually happened and be over, be, liberate yourself from that. Otherwise, it just keeps revisiting it, keep revisiting it. So then we get irritated, we get annoyed by it, we're trying to whack it away. And it's like it's an unliberated experience because it was never acknowledged. You know, it never got to move through the system. You know, and it's like, again, you're at the bouncer at the club trying to keep all these bad memories from getting into the present moment. And they're just like, we're not going anywhere, dude. You, know, you got gangs, you got all kinds of characters out there. Right? Let them in. And so this, this, this effort, so then we try to develop and cultivate and maintain these, these wholesome states of mind, kindness. And there's a whole bunch of mindfulness, generosity, 
in almost in every moment, we're almost in almost in every moment, we're chucking seeds. What seed am I putting into the future, right? Because it will pick up later. So it's almost like the thing that's so encouraging is like the Buddha says, a tree that leans to the east will fall to the east. And the tree that leans to the west will fall to the west. So which way is the mind? So we're constantly trying to get the mind leaning in the right direction. And if you think about it, statistically, 41 or 51 to 49 will eventually win over time. Right? We just have to be a little bit leaning in the right direction. 60, 40, probably be a little better, a little faster. But we're just trying to get that going. And that's why we practice every day. And that's why we do this. We have to remember to recognize, to direct the mind in the right kind of way. And that takes energy, that takes effort. It's totally worth it. Right? So we have to get that leaning, leaning, leaning. Right? And so that, that, that's really where this, the, the meditation practice begins. You don't hear a lot about effort when you go to mindfulness classes or insight classes. You hear lots about mindfulness and concentration. But effort, this teaching is like so quintessential because it's about developing the kind of mind that I actually want to be in. That's just where that begins. And then, of course, there's mindfulness, which we've, I'm not going to say a lot about that. That's what we've been up to, right? So awareness and mindfulness, it's, a, it's not the whole story. It's not the whole thing. It's, 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 one of the, it's one of the key players on team liberation, but it needs these other factors. It needs a little bit of effort. Then we have steadiness, or what's usually called Samadhi or concentration. I don't think concentration is the right word. Steadiness of mind, integration of mind. So if I have the appropriate effort and the appropriate mindfulness, you'll notice, have you noticed moments or periods of time where you felt steady? Just a kind of, I'm here, I'm here, I'm still here, I'm still here. That steadiness quality of mind is so helpful. And that really, really helps us move through the world because we don't get thrown off so easily. So the more I develop and maintain a quality of just a steadiness, slow and steady and present, watching the present moment, watching where it's headed, back and forth. And that is where mindfulness really, really starts to develop that quality of steadiness, where many, many moments repeated become continuous. That theory they talk about, actually Buddhist psychology says it, and now the neuroscientists are saying it, Short moments repeated become continuous. And that's what you've been doing. Sometimes you get a second. Sometimes you get 14 seconds. I bet you many of you have had like almost like minutes where you're like, wow, I'm like really been here for a minute. Right? It's a steadiness of mind. That's a developing the mind. Most people's minds are all over the place. That kapichitta monkey mind. And this is a funny thing that I hear all the time. It's like almost like, 100% true. When I talk to people who don't meditate or don't know anything about it, they always say the same thing. I could never meditate. I could never quiet my mind. I'm like, whoever said that? Right? So again, we do have to, if we're going to do this practice and we're going to take this seriously, we do have to develop our minds. Because in, uh, in especially in the world we live in now, I mean, I bet you there wasn't a lot of distractions in ancient India. I bet they had, they had a leg up on us. With a whole lot to do. How much shit do we have to do? So I think as modernity unfolds, I think it's just getting harder and harder and harder to develop the mind. Right? Because there's so many things, so many things to become distracted with. To get. So it's almost like our minds are trained to even be more distracted. 
more disconnected. So we have to work that much harder. And so going from that steadiness into, again, back to this word view, this perspective, which is, again, in many ways, the first of the path factors. And so sometimes it's called view, but I think it's good to maybe think of it as a perspective, my perspective on life, my worldview. What is my worldview? What is my self-view? You know, and I don't know about you, uh, one thing about view that's very interesting is if you look at moment by moment, our perception, we would say, which is one of the aggregates, every moment we perceive things. And almost like every moment of experience, we frame it up and we have a little bit of a picture. Right? And depending on the picture of the present moment, the present moment view creates my worldview. Like, for example, um, if I had a rough week and I didn't got a, get a lot of sleep and I woke up late and I'm kind of tired and I'm kind of grumpy, I get out of bed, I walk out into my, into my house and I'm just like, ugh. I take the present moment view a lot of times and I just project it onto reality. So I'm already kind of aversive and I'm a little bit irritated and I look around my house and my kitchen and I'm like, oh man, I don't, I gotta, we gotta get rid of that chair and kids never put their shoes away and somebody left the thing out. The world's bad. Everything's bad. And nobody does what they're supposed to do. And everybody's unreliable. And I always have to be the one who has to deal with it. I just built a whole world in that one moment because I'm a little grumpy. Now, I could wake up the next day, I could go to bed early, I could get a lot of sleep, I could sleep well, I could walk out into the same room in the same damn kitchen with the same shoes that haven't been put away and be totally happy and space. Like, oh yeah, life is going good, the kids are good, Colorado's great. What was the difference between those two experiences? The mind that I was in. So we're always projecting so it's probably in our best interest to be a little bit more aware of what the, what the internal view or perspective is because you're going to chuck it onto what... You're going to project it onto everything else. And it's hard to keep up with because there's days... I mean, you know, we doom scroll. Sometimes I think the end of the world is coming tomorrow. And sometimes I just feel totally positive. I'm like, oh, yeah. It's like the mind is so fickle. Right? So fickle. So if we haven't like kind of worked out some kind of perspective that maybe we believe in a little bit, then we're just subject to the ebb and flow of experience. We're just subject to the moment-by-moment opinion of what it means to be a person living in a world who has to do a thing or not do a thing. Right? Have you seen this? You just kind of like roll through that. Because there's probably no mindfulness. We're not aware of it. We're not tuned into that experience. And then this other word, as we kind of go through, I'll unpack them a bit further because some of them, I think, are really misunderstood. And the next one is this word that's usually translated as intention. So we have these views and we have these intentions, which is okay. Intention is an important part of it. The word is sankapa. Uh, but I think it actually more means something like imagination, which is a weird word to use in a room like this. Because, and this is where religion gets kind of interesting, like, Religion is not interested in you guys having an imaginative, creative kind of opinion on what's going on here. Right? It's not something that would be encouraged. So from a subjective point of view, if all of us are kind of tasked with the burden of we have to somehow imagine what we would even want our life to look like. If I don't even have a sense or an idea of where I would like any of this to go, I can probably guarantee you're definitely not going to get there. 
right? Which is kind of a strange thing because it requires thinking and it requires, it requires planning. It requires lots of cognitive stuff that we can use to our advantage if we're in an ebonic state, if we're at ease, if we feel kind, if, we, if that's the kind of mind state we're in, the imagination is very constructive and we can imagine, oh, maybe I'd like to do this, I'm going to go back to school, maybe we can kind of be more creative or having a kind of sense of our life being a bit more of a project rather than this irritating thing I have to deal with. And that all kind of depends on what kind of a mind state I'm in. Imagination is amazing because you can imagine the most beautiful, most meaningful, most profound things to do and you can also imagine some unbelievable, horrific shit. Right? And so what kind of a mind state do those, does that kind of imagination arise out of? If I'm irritated and I'm angry and I'm resentful and I want to get revenge on people, what kind of an imagination is going to emerge out of that space? Probably nothing helpful or enjoyable. Harmful, maybe. Right? This is why, again, it always comes back to wanting to develop the mind and develop the heart because the imagination, the thought world, which doesn't really get talked about so much in Dharma practice, it's kind of like, you've probably noticed thoughts kind of get a bad rap, like you're kind of like, it's almost, you get the sense of like they're all just bad and wrong and any thinking that we do is kind of like not good. That's why the noting can be so helpful because at some point, like I've said before, we have to confront the constructive side of the mind. So the mind can, be, can, can, can construct wholesome and meaningful and uh, open and adaptive and all the, it can construct that kind of an imagination or it can kind of construct or really a very destructive imagination. And I think that word uh, belongs here. And I, and, I, and I watch my mind imagine things all the time. Right? It kind of seems to be what it does. I imagine this, and I imagine that, and I imagine, well, what if this happened, and I imagine, what if that happened? So, so if we don't actually put the word in the room, I think we miss out on something. So it can mean imagination. It also can mean intention. Uh, it can mean desire or purpose. Again, it can, it's a lot of different things. It's kind of rooted in which... How would I like to proceed on the path? Do I have a sense of where I want to go, where I want to be? Do I have a sense of how to get there? And we have to constantly revisiting that dynamic. And, you know, and you're going to stray and you're going to fall off and you're going to get reactive. And it's really helpful if you have a team of people around you who can kind of help you. It's really hard to do that in isolation. Especially if you're surrounding yourself with people who are envious and who are jealous and who actually are not interested in you getting to where you want to go. Sometimes we surround ourselves with some pretty unhelpful people who are actually maybe even interested in not helping us get where we want to go. Because they're jealous or they're envious or they're angry or they're upset. It's, it, it's so important to find people who are cheerleading for you. Like, yeah, you should totally do that. They're happy for you when you succeed. They help you unpack ideas. They help you unpack your imagination. Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this thing. What do you think? Oh, yeah, you should totally do that. That'd be great for you. I'm like, no, you'd never do that. I don't bother doing that. And that's where we get into that. We live in a, in, in a culture, in a world that's like very much likes to prey on our doubt. It's interesting when... Um, it's that who do you think you are feeling. 
which is really interesting because there's a the historic story of like this kind of a fable folk story of like when the Buddha became enlightened, he was like sitting under the tree and he was doing like all this battle with this demonic figure called Mara. Who, so the Buddha's trying to become liberated and there's this aspect of his mind that's trying to like keep him from becoming liberated. So they're like, you know, throwing like, you know, food and sex and pleasure and trying to keep him from, trying to keep the destructive forces in the mind and it's not working. And Mara, the Mara figure is getting upset. This guy is going to become liberated. And I'm going to lose. And his final straw, his final last move, he whispered in the Buddha's ear, he's like, who do you think you are? Oh, yeah, right, really? Oh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to get healthy? You're going to go to the gym? You're going to go back and get a degree? You're, oh, yeah, who do you think you are? You know, you know you're not going to do it. You never do anything that you say you're going to do. Who do you think you are? You know this voice? The destructive whisper. Right? And that was the last straw. And, and, and the story goes, of course, as the Buddha touched the earth and said, the earth is my witness. Right? And so he, he talks about the last remnants. Uh, and really, from a Buddhist perspective, the most destructive force in the mind is doubt. Who do you think you are? You're not going to be happy. You're never going to be happy. You should just give up. Right? And that's a, that, 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 when, you're, when, you're really, when you're doing with that force and you're working with that man, you are dealing with the devil. That's as bad as it gets. And if you can overcome that, that, is, that is, takes so much courage, so much work to do that. And in many ways, that's a lot of what we're, we're, we're trying to, to work with. And so imagination plays into this. Intention. This intention I talked about tonight, this intention, trying to develop imagination, imagining what, what would be a goodwill. People say that. Someone mentioned it to me earlier, actually, is like, about like generosity. People say, well, I don't feel generous. How, how do I cultivate generosity? Like, you know, what, how do you do that? I'm like, well, could you just imagine, imagine a scenario, imagine what something that you could do in your life that would be generous. And how long does it take to imagine that? What is something that you could do for another person that would be an act of generosity? Can you imagine what that would be? It's like, oh yeah, sure. Well, then do it. Right? Can you imagine what an act of kindness would be for yourself or for somebody else? Yeah, I can imagine that would, what that would look like. Well, do it. Right? It's actually not that complicated. But a lot of it, it, it does. It takes place in this imagination. And then... The next path factor, which we've talked about a lot too, so imagination. So now I have to put voice to that. And this is such a dynamic process. This is such an important practice. And there's a whole teaching on it, right? Like when you think about the Eightfold Path, the one thing I like about it is they're not mysterious things. There are things like views and opinions and imagination and words and actions. They're very, uh, they're things that are very easy to see and to understand. They're not complicated things at all. And how do we develop this? So then, then the question becomes, can I imagine the life that I want to have? Can I imagine a, a generous action? Can I imagine these things? And can I actually, can I tell somebody about them? Can I put voice to these things? Right? One thing that happens in our culture, and I'm guilty of this, I try not to do it anymore, is a lot of times we like to commiserate where we get caught in this apathy and this cynicism uh, and we kind of imagine uh, terrible things and we talk to other people about the terrible things and they tell us about the terrible things and we're just kind of talking shit all the time. You know, can you believe it's so and so, dude? 
Fucking Trump got his fourth indictment. Oh my God, I can't believe that guy. It's like, we're just like, it's like, you know, it's, we all do it. I do it. I'm not trying to like, it's just like, pay a little more attention to it. You know? How can we have more constructive, more skillful, more useful conversations? The hour just cruises on by, doesn't it? So I'll kind of get these last two. I also wanted to just say, I didn't say this at the beginning, I know, I knew that when I came in here that I was going to try to talk about eight things and I wasn't going to be able to. And I was like, I'm not going to let that stand in my way. So here we are. And I'm trying to really highlight some of these ones, especially imagination, that really aren't really talked about so much. Voice, which I've talked about to some degree. And then I think the last two that are so important or so misunderstood is, uh, is doing our work, which they usually call right action, but like doing the hard work of trying to manifest or to put to actions these things that I've imagined for myself, putting words to those and then following through with some kind of uh, doing our work. People know this, people in recovery, people in therapy, we, we know what it means. Like, you know, you know when you've met somebody who's done some work, right? You know, and that's a really important thing. We have to do our work. And that doesn't mean just going on retreat. There's recovery work some of us have to do. There's psychological work. There's family work. There's, you know, there's this, you know. <laughs> We're projects. You are a big project, you know. And the thing about that that follows that up that makes this so hard in our culture, which is a conversation I'm very interested in having moving forward. And it's also a conversation that I've had with many of you one-on-one is I also have to survive, I have to make money. I have to live in this world. And the thing that makes it so hard is you actually have to be willing and figure out a way to do your work and to survive at the same time. And the reason why this doesn't get taught about or discovered so much is A, because mostly Buddhists with a monastic tradition and they just lived in a monastery, they didn't deal with money. That was really not something they had to deal with. So we don't have much on that. And so this is where the integration process is so hard. This is where I think Dharma practice has been very limited to us because we're like, yeah, sounds good, but I gotta, I gotta work 40 hours next week and I got a car payment and I gotta pay the mortgage and like, I don't have time to do my work. You know, I don't know. I mean, let's be honest, and I'll just say this, I'll say it more at the end, and you probably know this, coming on retreat is never and will never be convenient. You know? I'm going to unplug my phone, be away from work, not make any money, spend a bunch of money, and go sit in an empty room for seven days. When is that going to be convenient? <laughs> right? So again, even like, and Eileen has said this more than I have, it's like you've really, really, a lot of cultivation, a lot of work, a lot of imagination went into just getting you here last week. Like it took so much work to get here. It's so much work to be here. Right? So that is what I think makes it so hard, is how do I, how do I actually feel like I'm living a, a Dharma life or I'm living a contemplative life? And that means I want to bring these practices and these, this mindfulness and this kindness to the words that I say, to the way that I imagine things, to how I make money in the world, to how I relate to other people. Now, that might sound like a lot, but when you actually start to f- kind of sort that out a little bit, the practice, and this is what makes me so excited, is the practice really starts to come alive. You're like, oh, wow, I'm totally doing this thing. Because it actually turns out I'm talking all the time. I'm imagining things all the time. I'm doing things all the time. So trying to integrate that into a practice, into a way of life, into a lifestyle is exciting. 
You know, because a lot of people fall into this dichotomy where we think, you know, I have this kind of isolated Dharma practice thing that I do for 20 minutes or 30 minutes every day and maybe I get on a retreat once a year and then I have the rest of my life. And those are two things. Those are two separate things. And I've been there and I've done that. And that's just really kind of a little bit dissatisfying and disappointing and no one gives us a great kind of sense of, well, how do I integrate these things? And there's actually no template. There's no roadmap. There's actually not even really... This is kind of like, in many ways, all of us here right now are doing it or trying to figure it out as we speak. And that's an exciting kind of project or task to take on. So when we look at the Eightfold Path as kind of a gestalt, so like really the practice is mindfulness. It's really these, and in many ways, is trying to monitor these eight things and this idea that the whole is different or greater than the sum of its parts. So then again, we always have to be moving and we have to be clear about like, some of you are probably already excelling in some of these path factors and not giving yourself credit for it. Like I know a lot of you pretty well. Some of you have the livelihood thing down. You're doing meaningful work. You're out in the world. You're helping people. Like that's part of your Dharma practice, right? And so a lot of times we overemphasize the things we're not doing well and we don't acknowledge the things that we are doing well. So we have to kind of have a little bit way of like almost thinking of these things as mind states. Like I would argue probably all of you have like five path factor apps open right now. (laughs) Mindfulness, for sure. Perspective view, probably imagination. Right, so we really want to see these as like they're kind of states of mind. Right, you're pathing. These things are always always happening all of the time and if we can kind of hold them and becoming a holistic or becoming integrated and using that as a kind of template for how we navigate the world is it rain? okay good I was like what? (laughs) I was imagining all kinds of things (laughs) this is a hard one to end but to maybe just remember or to reflect or to consider that you're actually already doing the thing you think that you're not doing. Like, I think that we forget that a lot of times. You ever feel like, oh, I'm not really doing it, I'm not really doing it. I'm not, no, this, you're doing it. I mean, we're always, everybody's doing it, whether they realize it or not. We're, we're, we're trying to live and we're trying to also have to deal with the, A, the uncertainty of there's no guarantee, there's no promise. Right? It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of faith. And it takes a lot of courage. Those are very, very primary ingredients. And those are words that, like, I feel like nobody cares about anymore. Like, the word faith is so important. And how can we have faith in ourselves and our direct experience? And courage, the willingness to do what's scary, the willingness to do what's hard, the willingness to do what's unfamiliar, the willingness to say, I actually don't even know if this is going to work out, and it probably won't, and I'm going to try anyway. So again, we always want to have a sense of where we're going, and we want to, so there's that kind of walking this path moment by moment and getting a sense of where it's going, kind of a willingness to kind of pop back and forth between those. So I think I'll stop there. I appreciate your kind attention, and let's just uh, sit for a minute or so.